Thank you for joining us for Financial News. Articles read for this weekly program are selected from financial publications, including Bloomberg News, Forbes, Fortune, CNBC, New York Times, The Washington Post, The Financial Times, and other publications. My name is Michael Amy. This article is posted to Bloomberg on Monday, the 30th of January. The title, Fed's Wall Street Clash Sets Stage for Powell's Hawkish Message. FOMC is worried that markets may be missing its rate message. Financial conditions in the United States have eased the most in 11 months. This story written by Steve Matthews and Michael McKenzie. Again, posted on January 30th, Monday, so things could change over the course of the week in which this program airs. Here's the story. Jerome Powell and Wall Street are headed for another face-off this week as the Federal Reserve seeks to slow its inflation-fighting campaign without signaling a readiness to stop. Despite 2022's slew of interest rate hikes from Chair Powell and colleagues, financial conditions are the loosest since last February, as investors bet fading inflation will allow the central bank to soon cease raising borrowing costs and then cut them later this year. That's likely wishful thinking as far as Powell is concerned, and he has a clear incentive to push back against the trade given rising stocks and bonds could fan the very price pressures he wants to restrain. Such a backdrop means Powell is expected to balance this week's likely 25 basis point increase in rates with a stern message that the step down in size from the past six hikes does not diminish his commitment to reducing inflation to 2%. It stood at 5% in December. He may even be willing to roil the upbeat markets if that's what it takes to make his point. He can just send a hawkish message, said Ethan Harris, head of global economics research at Bank of America Corp. I don't think he's going to want the market rallying out of this meeting. He doesn't want to throw more gasoline on this kind of optimistic spin fueling the markets, he said. Powell has sometimes struggled to get markets to take him at his word. In July, investors divined a policy pivot from his post-meeting press conference, even though he stressed the need to keep raising rates. That then gave rise to a strikingly hawkish speech by Powell the following month at the Fed's Jackson Hole, Wyoming conference to hammer the message home. Fed officials look set to raise rates by a quarter point to a range of 4.5% to 4.75% following a half-point hike last month and four straight 75 basis point increases representing the most aggressive tightening campaign in four decades. Still, financial conditions are now looser than in March when policymakers began to raise rates and minutes of their December meeting show that this was already on their minds. Officials note that an unwarranted easing in conditions would complicate their task of restoring price stability. Dallas Fed President Lori Logan, speaking on January 18th, cautioned that policy could respond if financial conditions ease further in response to a slower pace of rate increases. If that happens, we can offset the effect by gradually raising rates to a higher level than previously expected, she said.
Traders are firmly pricing in a quarter-point rate hike at the upcoming meeting with a second move of the same size, largely set up for March. Traders expect a peak policy rate around 4.9% by May and June, falling to below 4.5% by the December meeting and with further cuts indicated for 2024. By contrast, the central bank's December forecast shows 17 of 19 officials projecting rates above 5% this year, with two of them above 5.5%. They need a greater tightening of financial conditions than they are seeing, said Sonia Meskin, head of U.S. Macro at BNY Mellon. The Fed has struggled with this particular issue through 2022, And it seems the struggle is now being continued into 2023. They're worried about it. Financial conditions are critical to the Fed's effort to reduce growth below its long-term trend in the face of a resilient economy. Gross domestic product expanded at 2.9% annualized rate in the final three months of 2022, while initial unemployment claims fell to the lowest since April in a sign of a continued tight labor market. The Fed will deliver a hawkish press conference, said Gargi Shadhuri, the head of iShares Investment Strategy for the Americas at BlackRock. I imagine Chair Powell pushes back on the number of cuts priced in by the market before the end of this year. The tight labor market is giving them the opportunity to do so, he said. There are several ways tight conditions reduce growth and if taken far enough, can induce a recession. Rising mortgage rates cool off the housing market, and higher lending rates can make corporate investments more expensive. A stronger dollar hurts manufacturing by making exports more pricier and imports cheaper. And lower stock and bond prices can help restrain consumer spending through a wealth effect. With the exception of Logan's comments, policymakers have not gone out of their way to discuss financial markets. There has not been a concerted effort on the committee to push back against looser financial conditions, said Steve Bartolini, portfolio manager fixed income at T. Rowe Price. I would be surprised if Powell does not push back and likely against the market pricing in rate cuts for the back half of this year. Powell's press conference could be tricky, as he will need to acknowledge that the inflation outlook has improved, one of the factors driving recent gains in stock and bond prices, while stressing the need for still higher rates to bring inflation down to the Fed's 2% target. The goal now is to keep the financial markets from pricing in a premature pause and lean against the bond market's expectation of rate cuts in the second half of 2023, which would lead to further unwanted easing in financial conditions, said Kathy Bosjensik, chief economist at Nationwide. You're leaning against the markets becoming too dovish. That is another reason for him to stay resolutely hawkish and to say that inflation is still our number one concern. And that article is posted to Bloomberg. The title Fed's Wall Street clash sets stage for Powell's hawkish message. And I want to repeat that you may be hearing this story at a time when there have been further developments. It was recorded on Monday, January 30th. 
This article is posted to finance.yahoo.com. It's titled, Treasuries Yields Tick Higher as Fed Hike Jobs Report Loom in the Week Ahead. This is written by David Randall, posted on Monday, January 30th. The source is Reuters. U.S. Treasury yields edged higher on Monday as the start of a busy week of economic data and a widely anticipated interest rate hike by the Federal Reserve. Investors have priced in near certainty that the Fed would raise benchmark rates by 25 basis points at the end of its meeting on Wednesday, the smallest increase since the central bank began its rate hike cycle 10 months ago. Economic data scheduled to be released this week, which includes readings on consumer confidence, construction spending, and unemployment, are expected to factor into whether the Fed will conclude its rate hike in March. We anticipate the price action itself will be the most relevant takeaway from the session as investors seek to set up for this week's array of fundamental and policy developments, said Ian Langan, head of U.S. rate strategy at BMO Capital Markets. The yield on 10-year Treasury notes was up 3.5 basis points to 3.553%, bringing it close to its highest level since January 11th. The yield on the 30-year Treasury bond was up 2.8 basis points to 3.662%. Rising concern about the possibility of a default if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling helped propel greater demand for six-month bills than for three-month bills in separate auctions held Monday, said Thomas Simons, money market economist at Jefferies LLC. It's possible that the buy side is steering clear of the three months because of an expected paydown in bills that will be ongoing when the bill matures, he said. A closely watched part of the U.S. Treasury yield curve measuring the gap between yields on two- and ten-year Treasury notes, seen as an indicator of economic expectations, was at a minus 70.6 basis points. The two-year U.S. Treasury yield, which typically moves in step with interest rate expectations, was up five basis points at 4.257% January 30th. That's Monday, and that was in the afternoon. And again, that's on yahoo.com. Its title is Treasury's Yield Tick Higher as Fed hike and jobs report loom in weeks ahead. And as we've been saying, anything can happen this week. So by the time you hear this story, it could have changed. The source of the story is Reuters. This article is posted to Bloomberg. The title is Historic Crash for Memory Chips Threatens to Wipe Out Earnings. Falling gadget demand has dealt massive blow to Hynix Micron. Chip industry bracing for Samsung's earnings on Tuesday. This by Sohee Kim, Ian King, and Lin Zhu was posted on Sunday, January 29, 2023. This time was supposed to be different. The memory chip sector, famous for its boom and bust cycles, had changed its ways combination of more disciplined management and new markets for its products, including 5G technology and cloud services, would ensure that companies delivered more predictable earnings. And yet, less than a year after memory companies made such pronouncements, the $160 billion industry is suffering one of its worst routes ever. 
There's a glut of the chips sitting in warehouses. Customers are cutting orders and product prices have plunged. The chip industry thought that suppliers were going to have better control, said Avril Wu, Senior Research Vice President at Trendforce. This downturn has proved everybody was wrong. The unprecedented crisis isn't just wiping out cash at industry leaders like SK Hynix and Micron Technology, but also destabilizing their suppliers, denting Asian economies that rely on tech exports, and forcing the few remaining memory players to form alliances or even consider mergers. It's been a swift descent from the industry's pandemic sales surge, which was fueled by shoppers outfitting home offices and snapping up computers, tablets, and smartphones. Now consumers and businesses are holding off on big purchases as they cope with inflation and rising interest rates. Makers of those devices, the main buyers of memory chips, are suddenly stuck with stockpiles of components and have no need for more. Already, Samsung Electronics and its rivals are losing money on every chip they produce. Their collective operating losses are projected to hit a record $5 billion this year. Inventories, a critical indicator of demand for memory chips, have more than tripled to record levels, reaching three to four months' worth of supply. Samsung looks to be the only one that will escape relatively unscathed thanks to its heft and diversified business, but even the South Korean giant's semiconductor division is headed toward losses. Investors will get a sense of the damage this week when the company reports quarterly earnings. Chip equipment company sales are plunging by around 30% to 50%. This is not a normal situation, said Greg Rowe, head of technology research at HMC Investment and Securities. Shares in Samsung fell as much as 2.3% Monday morning in its biggest intraday fall in 12 days. SK Hynix fell 1.6%. The industry is suffering from a unique combination of circumstances, a pandemic hangover, the war in Ukraine, historic inflation, and supply chain disruptions that have made the slump much worse than a regular cyclical downturn. Micron, the last remaining U.S. memory chip maker, has responded aggressively to plummeting demand. The company said late last month it will cut its budget for new plants and equipment in addition to reducing output. The rate at which the industry writes itself will depend on how quickly the company's counterparts make similar moves, Chief Executive Officer Sanjay Mehrotra said. We have to get through the cycle, he said. I believe the trend of cross-cycle growth and profitability is still in place. Over in South Korea, Hynix has also slashed investments and scaled back output. The company's inventory glut is partly the result of its acquisition of Intel Corp's flash memory business, a deal struck before the industry's decline. All eyes are now on memory chip king Samsung, which has thus far said little about the industry's near-term prospects. The world's largest maker of chips, smartphones, and display panels is set to report fourth-quarter earnings on Tuesday, followed by a call during which analysts are likely to question its capacity management plans.
The Korean tech giant has typically continued to spend during downturns, hoping to exit them with superior production and higher profitability when demand picks up. This time around, the market has been betting the company will tighten its chip supply, lifting its stock price in recent weeks. Chip manufacturing equipment maker Lam Research Corp. said last week it's seeing an unprecedented reduction in orders as memory customers cut and postpone spending. Executives at the company, which counts Samsung, SK Hynix, and Micron as its top customers, declined to predict when such actions might help the memory market rebound. We've seen extraordinary measures within the memory market, LAM CEO Tim Archer said on a call with investors. It's at levels that we haven't seen in 25 years, he said. It's always been difficult for memory makers to handle spikes and troughs in demand. Bringing new factories online takes years and billions of dollars, so it's hard to get the timing right. The risks have prompted companies in the industry to get more conservative. They're more focused on profitability than trying to grow quickly and gain market share. That's especially true for so-called DRAM chips, D-R-A-M, where the three dominant suppliers, Samsung, Hynix, and Micron, are reducing supply, said Shin Jin-ho, co-CEO of Midas International Asset Management. The other major part of the memory market, NAND chips, is more fragmented and is set to go through a more severe battle as the many contenders fight for survival, he said. The NAND market is experiencing fierce competition, and the recovery will follow one quarter after the DRAM markets recover, Shin said. If the situation gets longer, eventually we're going to see consolidation in the NAND market. The memory industry had mergers during previous downturns, and this one may be no exception. NAND maker Western Digital Corp. and Kioxia Holding Corp. are progressing in their deal talks, people familiar with the matter said this month. Still, the companies already manufacture jointly, and thus a merger won't necessarily lead to reduced output. The longer-term question is when customers' demand will bounce back. China's recent exit from COVID-related restrictions could be one catalyst to help the industry, as gadget makers will be able to bring manufacturing plants back to normal rhythm, said HMC Investments Rowe. There will be pent-up demand for gadgets as well, he said. Our view is that memory will recover in the second half. And the title of that, Historic Crash for Memory Chips Threatens to Wipe Out Earnings. This article is posted to Forbes. Title is, How a 529 Plan to Child IRA Conversion Can Turn Your Teen into a Middle-Class Millionaire. This was written by Chris Carosa, posted on January 28, 2023. There's been a problem with 529 plans from their very beginning. They've always been a gamble. You gambled your child would actually go to college. You gambled your child would not earn a scholarship. You gambled you would put too much money into the 529 plan. Why is the 529 plan a gamble? 
When you put money into a 529 plan, you lock it up forever. You can only use that money to pay for qualified education expenses. Keep in mind, not all education expenses are qualified. Secure 2.0 has changed that. Beginning in 2024, excess funds in 529 plans can be converted to Roth IRA savings for your child. This change addresses the reluctance of many to use the 529 plan as a savings tool. New York City-based Patricia Roberts, Chief Operating Officer at Gift of College Incorporated and author of Route 529, a parent guide for saving for college and career training with 529 plans, says, Grandparents may find comfort in knowing that if the funds they invest on a particular grandchild's behalf are not ultimately utilized for higher education pursuits, They can be rolled into an account that can benefit that grandchild later in life in their retirement years and may even be used toward a first-time home purchase since Roth IRAs allow for this under specific circumstances. But wait, there's more. Given the ability to convert 529 funds into Roth IRA savings, you can now turn your teen into a middle-class millionaire. But there are restrictions you need to pay attention to. Starting in 2024, holders of 529 plans will be able to roll their balance into Roth IRAs tax and penalty-free, says Brian Heckert, past president at Million Dollar Roundtable and principal at FSM Wealth in Nashville, Illinois. There's a $35,000 lifetime cap on transfers to a Roth, Rollovers are subject to the annual Roth IRA contribution limit. The limit is $6,500 in 2023. The rollover can only be made to the beneficiary's Roth IRA, not that of the account owner. For example, a 529 owned by a parent with the child as beneficiary would need to be rolled into the child's IRA, not the parent's. A bigger issue is that the 529 account must have been open for at least 15 years, and the account holder can't roll contributions or even earnings on those contributions made in the last five years. This may make the process a bit trickier. It may be tricky, but it's also easy. Some variables may change in the future, but the basic step-by-step process remains the same. It's best to look at this in reverse, which explains why the list starts at Step 5. Step 5. Consider first the lifetime cap of $35,000. This is the total amount of money you can transfer from a 529 plan into the child's Roth IRA, called a child IRA. Your initial goal, therefore is to save enough in the 529 plan so that it will leave you with $35,000 in excess funds. Don't do anything with this number right now. Just remember that is your goal. Step number four. Remember, we're going backwards here. Next, recall that there are annual contribution limits. Currently 6500 This number will no doubt increase over time since Congress has done this repeatedly in the past. For the purpose of this demonstration, however, assume a constant annual contribution limit of $6,500. With a lifetime cap of $35,000, this means you won't reach this limit until the sixth year after you start converting. 
you'll only be able to convert $2,500 in the sixth year. Step three, because it will take six years to fully convert the $35,000 lifetime cap, you don't have to have attained that cap the year you begin the conversion process. So what's your dollar goal at the time you begin the conversion? Based on the current five-year treasury rate of 3.65%, you'll need to begin your conversion year with $31,250. Step 2. Secure 2.0 states you'll need to wait 15 years before you can convert. In other words, you have 15 years to build up your child's 529 plan to a point where it has $31,250 in excess funds. For simplicity, here are two methods to accomplish this. First, invest a lump sum in the first year. And two, invest a consistent amount every year. Based on a projected annual return of 8%, the lump sum method would require an initial investment of $9,850. For a consistent contribution every year for 15 years, you'll want to save $1,030 every year for 15 years. Either way, at the end of 15 years, you'll end up with $31,250. And then step one, if you have a current 529 plan, the age at which you can convert it into a child IRA for your child will depend on how old your child was when you established the 529 plan. According to Morningstar, on average, parents start 529 plans when a child is 7 years old. Because of this, Morningstar says they miss out on $30,000 by not establishing the 529 plan when the child was born. This assumes they save $50,000 spread equally throughout the life of the 529 plan. If you start the 529 plan when the child is 7, you won't be able to begin the conversion process until 15 years later when the child is 22. If you start the 529 plan when the child is a newborn, the conversion process begins at age 16. How much money does the 7-year-old lose versus the newborn? Again, assuming an 8% long-term return versus an 11% historical average. The 7-year-old's child IRA will grow to $1.3 million when retiring at age 70. The newborn's child IRA, on the other hand, grows to $2.1 million at age 70. That's a difference of more than three-quarters of a million dollars. Remember, these are back-of-the-envelope calculations, so the numbers will change in precise detail, but not in concept. Here's the key takeaway. If you haven't started a 529 plan for your child, do it now. Next year starts a whole new world for your child or grandchild. Again, this was written by Chris Carosa. He says he's a child IRA expert and hamburger historian, author of The Parent's Guide to Turning Your Teen into a Millionaire and How to Do It Before High School Graduation. This article is posted to Forbes. The title, Pandemic Nears Transition Point, but it's still a global health emergency, the WHO Warns. This was written by Ty Rausch and posted on January 30th, 2023. Here's the top line. The COVID-19 pandemic will remain a global health emergency despite reaching a transition point, 
the World Health Organization said on Monday, suggesting higher immunity levels will soon result in fewer virus-related deaths as the U.S. continues to average more than 500 per week. COVID-19 remains a dangerous infectious disease with the capacity to cause substantial damage to health and health systems. The Global Health Agency said Monday, adding, there is little doubt the virus will remain despite mitigating factors. Though we're in a far better situation now compared to this time last year, WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Gebreyesus said there are still concerns as more than 170,000 people globally have died from COVID over the previous eight weeks. More than 13.1 billion COVID vaccines have been administered globally, according to WHO, including nearly 90% of all health workers and more than 60% of people over 60 years of age receiving at least two doses. The agency suggested the pandemic fatigue has reduced public perception of risk, leading to fewer people following public health measures like wearing masks or social distancing. 537 is a big number. That's the seven-day average of people dying from COVID-19 in the United States, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is a decline of 4.9% over the previous week. Some key background. Weekly trends for COVID-19 in the United States have continued to decline in recent weeks compared to last year, though the virus remains a public health issue. Over 2,300 new COVID cases were reported in the United States on January 15, 2022, following the spread of the new Omicron variant, compared to over 140 on January 16, 2023. The weekly average of new COVID cases, that is 42,163, has declined by 11.3% over the previous week, according to the CDC. The CDC estimates about 69.2% of the United States, over 229 million people, have received at least the first series of COVID vaccinations. Despite this, less than 20%, that is 41.6 million, have received an updated booster dose. The health agency estimates more cases will result in the spread of XBB.1.5, a new highly contagious Omicron variant that is projected to be present in more than 50% of all cases by the end of this month. Swiss pharmaceutical giant Roche announced last week it was developing a new COVID test designed to find XBB.1.5. The test uses PCR, a technique to amplify genetic material from samples like nasal swabs, considered to be one of the most accurate and reliable forms of testing available, though it's only currently available for research. You're listening to Financial News, a weekly program with a focus on personal finance, retirement and estate planning, and the global economy. My name is Michael Amy. This article is posted to Forbes. Title is, A Pharmacist Shortage Has Caused CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart to Cut Pharmacy Hours. Here's what we know. This was written by Anthony Tellez and posted on Monday, January 30th, 2023. 
Top line, major drugstore chains have announced they will be reducing hours in March following labor shortages. Key facts, CVS Health, one of the largest drugstore chains, is expecting to cut hours at two-thirds of its 9,000 locations by March. And Walmart has also announced it plans to shorten pharmacy hours from 9 p.m. to 7 p.m. at most of its 4,600 stores in March, according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. Walgreens, which includes the chain Duane Reed, has previously announced it was reducing hours due to labor shortages, USA Today has reported. Between the three, they operate close to 24,000 pharmacies across the country. Not only are chain stores experiencing a shortage, two-thirds of community pharmacies are also dealing with a labor shortage and struggling to fill open positions, according to a survey from the National Community Pharmacists Association. Employment growth for pharmacists is projected to grow only 2%, much slower than other occupations, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which also reports the demand for pharmacists has risen as they expand their roles beyond filling prescriptions. Shortages have led to highly stressful job environments for pharmacists, according to a report by the National Pharmacists' Workforce Study, with problems ranging from work-life balance issues and heavy workloads contributing to burnout. According to the study, pharmacists report high workload environments came from chains, 91%, and mass merchandiser, 88% pharmacy settings. Also contributing to the problem is wage growth for pharmacists, which fell 5% last year after adjusting for inflation, according to the New York Times. Some key background. Following the previous pharmacist shortage in 2000, according to a report to Congress by the Health Resources and Services Administration, new schools for pharmaceutical studies opened up at a rapid rate, and by 2010, the supply of pharmacists outpaced the demand, leading to a petition from pharmacists to stop accreditation until 2030, according to a report by the American Journal of Pharmaceutical Education. Still, U.S. data shows, despite employment growth, there are 13,600 projected job openings for pharmacists each year, though those numbers come from other pharmacists leaving the industry and older ones retiring. Independent pharmacies responding to a survey say shortages are leading to higher payroll costs and longer wait times for patients looking to fill their prescriptions. Data also shows jobs at community and chain pharmacies decreasing as more people fill their prescriptions online or by mail. Some chains, such as Walgreens, are looking toward automated robots to fill prescriptions as it deals with shortages of pharmacists and cuts their workload by 25% and save the company a billion dollars, reports the journal. Another study also found that younger pharmacists are more restless in their positions and are more likely to look for other job opportunities. This article is posted to the New York Times. Title is Consumer Spending Slid Again in December. Fresh data offered more detail on how shoppers retrenched at the end of 2022. This was written by Ben Castleman and Gianna Smialik 
and posted on January 27th. For more than a year now, the U.S. economy has faced two fundamental interwoven challenges. Consumers wouldn't stop spending, and prices wouldn't stop rising. Both trends are now showing early signs of reversing. Consumer spending fell in both November and December, the Commerce Department said on Friday, as shoppers pulled back amid rising prices, dwindling savings, and warnings of a looming recession. Inflation is also easing. Consumer prices rose 5% in the year through December, according to the Federal Reserve's preferred measure. While still much more rapid than normal, that was the slowest pace in more than a year. Taken together, the figures paint a picture of an economy that is, at long last, coming off the boil. From the Fed's perspective, that's good news. The central bank has spent the past year aggressively raising interest rates in an effort to force consumers and businesses alike to pull back their spending, which should result in slower price increases. Now there's mounting evidence those efforts are bearing fruit. The medicine is taking, said Sarah Watt House, senior economist at Wells Fargo. The economy is on the right path, she said. That path is an uncertain and narrow one, however. So far, the Fed has managed to cool down the economy without short-circuiting the recovery and causing a big increase in unemployment. But the full effects of its actions have yet to be felt. Policymakers are expected to raise rates by another quarter point at their meeting next week, a move that would put rates in a range of 45 to 4.75%. Even once they stop raising rates, the central bank has indicated it expects to keep borrowing costs high for a significant period. Many forecasters doubt the Fed will be able to bring down inflation as far as it wants without causing a recession, which some expect to begin later this year. There are also risks in the other direction. A recent slowdown in inflation and spending, while encouraging, could still reverse. The labor market remains very strong, for instance, which could continue to fuel the economy. You're starting to see the early signs of what the Fed needs to see, said Matthew Lazuti, chief U.S. economist at Deutsche Bank Securities. It's still early, and you don't know how much of this will be persistent, he said. The data released Friday showed that consumer prices rose 0.1% in December for the second straight month and were up 5% from a year earlier, a notable annual slowdown from 5.5% in November and a continuation of a six-month downward trend. The measure, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, is related to the better-known Consumer Price Index and is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. After food and fuel are stripped out, the price index climbed 4.4% from a year earlier, in line with what economists in a Bloomberg survey had expected, and slowdown from 4.7% in November. Consumer spending fell 0.2% in December, and spending for November, which the government initially reported as a modest increase, was revised to show a small decline. Income continued to rise, reflecting the strong job market. But instead of spending their extra income, Americans chose to save more, a sign that people may be becoming more cautious amid news of layoffs and talk of a possible downturn. 
households in the aggregate still have hundreds of billions of dollars in savings built up during the pandemic, but that cushion has been shrinking. Overall, it's a sign that consumers are becoming more cautious, Ms. House said. Consumers are beginning to retrench. The data is consistent with anecdotes suggesting that consumers, after months of spending freely, are becoming more sensitive to rising prices. At the clothing chain Express, for instance, people shopping for women's apparel have become more attuned to cost again. The company's responding to that, Timothy Baxter, the company's chief executive, said on an earnings call in December. We're recalibrating our assortments to reintroduce more opening price points, more price points that are more in line with where we have been historically, Mr. Baxter said. But he noted that the return in price sensitivity wasn't true across the board. For instance, demand for jackets with modern tailoring has been strong. We've seen very little price resistance actually there because the value we offer in those categories is so extraordinary, he said. Friday's data are among the last readings on the state of the economy that the Fed will receive before it announces its interest rate decision this week. Central bankers are particularly watching the labor market and spending trends as they try to guess how many more policy adjustments are needed and how long rates should be held at a high level. The Fed's rate moves work by slowing the job market and tempering demand, which in turn forces companies to increase prices more slowly to avoid losing customers. That's what makes every new data point on spending so important. Central bankers will receive another critical piece of information about the economy on Tuesday when the Employment Cost Index is released on the eve of their policy decision. That figure should give them a sense of whether wage growth is truly slowing or whether it's chugging along at a rapid pace. I'll be looking for the recent improvement in headline and core inflation to continue, Christopher Waller, a Fed governor, said in a speech last week. Wages are another stream of data that I'll be watching for evidence of continued progress to help ease inflation overall. But Mr. Waller added that recent economic data has been encouraging, increasing the chances that the Fed would slow down the economy and inflation gradually and without causing a painful recession. I am cautious about the recent good news, but it is good news, he said. Again, this was written by Ben Castleman. He writes about economics with a particular focus on stories involving data. He previously reported for 538 and the Wall Street Journal. The other person on the story, Gianna Smialik, writes about the Federal Reserve and the economy for the New York Times. She previously covered economics at Bloomberg News. This article is posted to the New York Times. The title, Families Struggle as Pandemic Program Offering Free School Meals Ends. A federal benefit guaranteeing free school meals to millions more students has expired as food prices have risen. Many families are feeling the pinch. This was written by Linda Q and posted on January 22nd, 2023. Like other parents, April Vasquez, a school nutrition specialist in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 
is cutting coupons, buying in bulk, and foregoing outings and restaurant meals. Still, a hot lunch in the school cafeteria for her three children is now a treat she has to carefully plan in her budget. The expiration of waivers that guaranteed free school meals for nearly 30 million students across the United States during the pandemic has meant that families like Ms. Vasquez's, who earn just over the income threshold, no longer qualify for a federal program allowing children to eat at no cost. As pandemic-era assistance programs lapse and inflation reaches record highs, Ms. Vasquez is hardly alone. The number of students receiving free lunches decreased by about a third to around 18.8 million in October, the latest month with available data. In comparison, about 20.3 million students ate free in October 2019 before the pandemic. That drop can be attributed to several factors, like being on the cusp of eligibility, lack of awareness that the program had ended by the start of the school year, and fewer schools participating in the program overall. It's just making things a heck of a lot worse at the most difficult moment that I think American families have seen in a generation, said Kerry Rodriguez, a co-founder and president of the National Parents Union Network. For Ms. Vasquez, returning to a reality where she must pay full price for a school meal, about 3 or $4 for each child, is trying, and most days her children bring a packed lunch. Bagels, cream cheese, and apples are typical. Grapes and strawberries are rare because they're too expensive. It's painful to know that my kids aren't going to get free or reduced, she said. Before the pandemic, Ms. Vasquez worked part-time as a special education assistant, and her children teetered between qualifying for free or reduced-price meals year to year. But when she took a full-time job as a nutritionist in August 2021, her salary was just enough to bump her family above the income threshold for either benefit, about $42,000 annually for free meals for a family of five, and $60,000 for reduced-price meals. That was actually a worry when I applied for this position, because you don't know what's going to happen. Am I going to get disqualified for this, she said, adding that she ultimately took the job with a view toward long-term financial stability. Even as some parents have seen their wages increase and the criteria for free and reduced-price meals expand, those boons have done little to blunt the impact of rising food costs. From the 2019-20 school year to this school year, the income eligibility for free and reduced price meals has increased by about 7.8%. Average hourly wage growth in that same period grew by 17.1%. Consumer prices, though, have risen by 15.4%, and food prices by 20.2% surpassing wage growth. In the Sioux Falls School District, where Ms. Vasquez works and where her children attend school, about 41% of children qualified for free or reduced-price lunch this school year, compared with about 49% before the pandemic, said its nutrition director, Gay Anderson, some parents have remarked that they would be better off missing half a week's work to get that free meal, she said. The income eligibility guidelines are just not keeping pace with inflation, 
and families are barely making ends meet. So what we're seeing is a lot of people are saying, I can't believe I don't qualify as I always did. If they're making a dollar more or whatever, that will do it, Ms. Anderson said. At Wellington Exempted Village Schools in northeastern Ohio, Andrea Heltzen, the nutrition director, described denying the program to nearly 50 families in a school district of about a 1,000 students. She recalled a single mother who lamented, I missed the cutoff for reduced meals by $100 of gross income. But Miss Helton said, there's nothing I can do, and it's heartbreaking. Families are also struggling to navigate a maze of new rules or unaware that the program had ended, contending with having to pay for meals that had once been free. Megan, a mother of three school-aged children in Miss Helton's district, who asked to be identified only by her first name because of privacy concerns, said that she had grown accustomed to the program so when the school pressed her for money owed for unpaid lunches, it was a shocker. By the end of the fall semester, she had racked up $136 in debt. When Megan learned that holiday donations to the school district had wiped out that sum, I just melted into a puddle because when you're down to that last $100, the last thing you want to have to worry about is whether your kids are eating or not, she said through tears. It's difficult to estimate how many students are now going hungry, but school officials and nutrition advocates point to proxy measurements, debt owed by families who cannot afford a school meal, for example, or the number of applications for free and reduced price meals as evidence of unmet need. In a survey released this month by the School Nutrition Association, 96.3% of school districts reported that meal debt had increased. Median debt rose to $5,164 per district through November, already higher than the 3400 median reported for the entire school year in the group's 2019 survey. At school, Ms. Vasquez described witness, witnessing children sitting in the cafeteria with packed lunches consisting of only a bag of chips or an apple. Others have inched toward the cash register with a lunch tray, a look of fear and recognition flashing across the kids' eyes when they see the computer like, yeah, I know I'm negative, but I want to eat, she said. You see, other kids struggle, and knowing, hey, I'm in the same boat, she added, I know exactly what you're going through. The end of universal school meals has led fewer schools to participate in the program overall. About 88% of public schools are operating a meal program this school year, compared with 94% in the previous school year. And 27.4 million children were eating a school lunch in October, compared with about 30 million in May, the last month the school year with the program in place. That can create a vicious cycle in which lower participation translates to higher costs per meal, forcing schools to raise the price of a meal and squeezing out even more families, said Crystal Fitzsimmons of the Food Research and Action Center, which routinely talks to schools about their nutrition programs. Schools and families alike face other administrative and financial complications as school officials grapple with soaring wholesale costs and labor shortages, highlighting other challenges and in increased participation. 
Now officials process paperwork to verify income eligibility, devote time and personnel to debt collection, and plan ahead for expected revenue and reimbursement rates. At Prince William County Schools in Virginia, Adam Russo, the nutrition director, said his office has had to dedicate more resources for outreach and education to inform parents of the policy change. Already, he relies on a multilingual staff to serve the 90,000 students in his district, one of the most diverse in the state. For many parents, he said, the process was new and potentially confusing, given the universal free meals had been in place since some of their children had started school. If your kid was in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, this is a completely foreign process to your family, he said. It's been table stakes, and we've pulled the tablecloth out from under our families. The application process, as well as the stigma associated with receiving a free or reduced-price lunch, can be prohibitive, advocates say. In 2019, even as some 29.6 million students were eligible for free or reduced-price meals, only 22 million received one, according to research. And about 20% of eligible households whose children did not receive either benefit reported food insecurity. The effort it takes to make sure these resources actually hit those kids for what that costs, it's a hell of a lot easier to just say, listen, food is free, Ms. Rodriguez said. The Universal Free School Meal Program pushed the federal cost of school nutrition programs from $18.7 billion in 2019's fiscal year to $28.7 billion in the 2022 fiscal year, according to data from the Agriculture Department, which administers the program. The department does not have an official estimate of the cost of permanently enacting the policy, a spokeswoman said. Such an initiative has drawn widespread support, with polls showing 74% of voters and 90% of parents favor the idea, but federal enactment seems unlikely. Republican lawmakers in Congress oppose permanently extending the policy, arguing that the free meals should serve only the neediest and that the pandemic-era policies must eventually end. Still, some states and some parents have been spurred to take action. For Amber Stewart, a mother of five in Duluth, Minnesota, the program was life-saving. Before the pandemic, when the family owed money for meals, her daughter would receive a cold cheese sandwich and a carton of milk, signaling to classmates she could not afford the hot meal. Stern letters demanded repayment and warned of consequences. Then the pandemic rolled around and everybody was eligible for free meals, and they delivered it, or you could go pick it up, said Miss Stewart, who asked to be identified by her maiden name. It was amazing. This article goes on, but we've run out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us today for Financial News. My name is Michael Amy. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-786. 7777.